I think World War II is a big part of our, our national psychosis. That was a point in which Britain was unequivocally on the right side. And it basically burnt up its empire and its status as a global power to help save the world from fascism. But it means that that's kind of the narrative we get instead of the reckoning with the end of empire. And yeah, I think that does explain not quite all, but almost all of the politics of Brexit. Hi, I'm Isabel Hogan, and this is Borderline. My friend John Elledge joins us on the podcast today. John is the man that you want on your team at Pop Quiz, one that you will never be bored sitting opposite at a dinner party, and that you definitely want in your Twitter feed and in your inbox. He is the author of The Compendium of Not Quite Everything, a really fun book full of short essays about not quite everything. John is just someone who knows a lot about a lot of things. And I brought him on the podcast thinking, I'm not quite sure what we'll talk about, but I'm sure it's going to be interesting. And of course, it did end up fascinating. He, an Englishman, me, a French woman, we ended up comparing our national mythologies, the legacies of our empires, and why our national malaise feels quite similar in both countries. He even managed to maybe wade into a topic I usually back away from slowly, and that's explaining differences between French universalism and British multiculturalism, or U.S. multiculturalism. So a conversation, freewheeling, in a lot of different areas that ends up being fascinating. We talked for over an hour. I cut a bit, but honestly, on a conversation like this, if you start making cuts in the middle, you really don't know how you got from point A to point B. So this is a one-hour episode. You can enjoy it at your own pace. I think you won't regret it. Here's my chat with John Illich. Hey, John. Hello. I have to make a confession, which is it is the first time in my career, uh, definitely the career of this podcast, that I schedule an interview with no idea exactly where I want to take it. <laughs> but okay, cool, that's all good. But yeah. I feel like we're going to end up somewhere fascinating in, anyway. I'm also, I, I'm, I'm you know, just chatting nonsense is, is kind of my, my, my main skill, well, to be that's honest. That's wonderful. So because of the topic of this podcast, which you're familiar with, I immediately jumped to the section on uh, section two, I believe, on, on all the countries. And the, it's called the human planet and the lines we draw on it, which for a podcast yes. called Borderline yeah. is, is delightful. And learned a bunch of stuff. I don't even know which one to start with. I was, and that's, that's the marginalia that you saw me posting on Twitter that seemed to have pleased you. But I was amused to note in the largest countries and the smallest countries that it is one of the world's smallest country where one of the world's largest countries had has dumped all the immigrants that it doesn't want um <laughs> namely the island of Nauru which hosts Australia's offshore detention centers for migrants so that was a nice little tidbit there. I didn't I didn't realize that that's horrific there that is that is because it's, I mean, Australia is not, not short of space, is it? No, it's, it's not. Like... It's adopted policies, you know, 10, 10, 15 years back now that our own Prachi Patel is inspired by and, and would delight in, which is refusing any arrival by, by boat, any asylum seeker to t reach Australian shores. So they are captured 
and kept in detention centers on the Pacific island of Nauru, which has signed a deal with Australia. Uh, very, very poor country, obviously. Very, very few industries and, and very impacted by climate change. So the one thing that they have is a, is an Australian offshore detention center where people can spend years and years in horrid condition. I was going to say, I mean, it, 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 it is one of those countries that might literally physically cease to exist. Yeah. It's one of those which, that literally just be under the waves. The which you the would century, think would which... give Australia a uh, motivation to address climate change, I guess, if nothing else. But this is this is kind of the horror of this kind of politics, though, is like it's... You, you do kind of think that maybe that's part of the sort of the the the, the sort of opposite of virtue signaling, vermin signaling, someone once mm. called it. It's deliberately incredibly supervillain and horrible because that's how 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 the Australian government wants to communicate to its to its voters that it's being tough on 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 uh, immigration, tough on on on, on refugees. So that the the idea that we would ever want to be tough on refugees is is kind of quite obscene in itself. But but just like the idea of dumping people on an island that is going to be underwater, possibly in our lifetimes, is just that is that is proper kind of James Bond villain shit, isn't it? Yeah, it's something that I had n never heard about until I moved to Australia a few years ago, and is very little covered in Europe. Even though we talk about immigration policy a lot, but we don't necessarily see how it's done elsewhere. Yeah, it's. I mean, I mean, particularly, particularly here but i suspect there is an element of it in much of europe too like we're quite we're so sort of insular we kind of look a little we look to the us and see what's going on there maybe a little bit from france or germany but other than or, or a little bit from australia but like most we have no idea what's going on in most countries in the world and i suspect that's probably actually like i i wonder how true that is of a lot of other i mean i suppose if you're if you're luxembourg then, then you kind of have to be more aware of, of what's going on around the place. And also you probably don't have that much of your own news to worry about, but I suspect <laughs> that kind of, the, the, the tendency to kind of focus on a relatively small pool of countries and be completely ignorant about all the others, I suspect yeah. is, is fairly universal maybe. It, uh, it is at least, um, it's funny you should say that because it's a, it's a journalistic project I have uh, for Borderline. Of uh, a new newsletter, you'll you'll hear it here first. I don't know when that's going to come out, but to to do precisely that, a kind of comparative study of of what's going on in the news, at least in all the countries I've lived in, it's it's pretty insular. Some less than other, you know. In in certainly in continental Europe, you get more news somewhat of the rest of Europe, but not really. It was fascinating in Australia that they are obsessed with American news in many ways. So. You would hear about some random crime in Florida, because it's always in Florida, but not about, you know, very neighboring countries in, in Asia Pacific. I think that's, I mean, I think, again, I suspect the sort of obsession with, with the US is fairly, fairly universal, but I think that's probably, I'm not sure that's actually irrational. Like it's, it is, I mean, one, one can argue about what, how one defines, yeah, I was going to say empire and possibly too strongly, but certainly hegemon. It is a hegemonic power. What happens in the U.S.? What happens in in Washington D.C. and you know presidential elections and U.S. foreign policy and so on does have an impact on on the rest of us in a way that not that many countries' politics do. I mean, obviously, like, I think much of Europe would have been paying a lot of attention to the recent German elections, for example. But but most countries' elections are not that relevant to most other countries. Uh, whereas, obviously, American elections are going to have. 
an impact on the rest of us. So I suspect between that and the kind of the, the cultural dominance of, of US products means that they, I suspect that kind of spills over into like paying attention to kind of wacky crimes in Florida and that kind of thing as well. Yeah, but, perhaps, perhaps. But it is hard to keep track of, um, how many is it now? 27 different countries in the EU and plus like all the peripheral runs as, as the UK sadly has been, has been relegated to. You can't keep track of all these things and fundamentally like what the exact state of the, the, the Slovenian uh, government is is probably not going to impact your your life. Fair enough. So so I, yeah, I mean, I I don't think it's that weird that I I do think it's appalling that we don't know uh, in this in this country. I think it's appalling we don't pay more attention to to particularly French and German politics because they're, they're obviously they they you know be two big uh, players in the EU, and I think it's it's insane how little uh, how ignorant people were about how, how the institutions of the European Union work and what, what, what the work going on in Brussels actually is. And I don't think that's, I, I don't think that, that's very far from the only reason we ended up with Brexit, but I do think that kind of ignorance, which, which people could project their kind of worst fears onto was, was a big factor in why, why, why there was such high levels of, of Euroscepticism mm. in this country. But, Certainly helped on by, by national politicians and, and you know, Britain is bad, but but certainly not the only one that's guilty of this. I've certainly seen it in French politics a lot where because people know so little about how EU institutions work, it's very convenient when something unpopular has to happen or, you know, a politician doesn't get their way to blame Brussels, so to speak, to blame the EU because it's, it's very convenient in, in election time. And we were we're reaping the the consequences of that, even on the continent. Though I have to say that what y'all have done here has <laughs> pulled back or, or or slowed the tide of Euroscepticism on the continent because it's not it's not looking so good. What, what Brexit looks like? Yeah, it's like, <laughs> oh, that's that's great. I always wanted to be a cautionary tale. No, it's great. <laughs> I mean, one of the things I find, I mean, it's, it's one of the things I find fascinating about Brexit and where it's taken British politics is. It did take that vote to kind of generate a, 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 a proper pro-European movement in this country. And, and, you know, that's, that's obviously a, a minority, even of the, the people who voted remain, it's quite a small minority, but nonetheless, I think there are a lot more people in Britain who would consider themselves kind of ardently pro-European than there were before that referendum. You know, fact, not good it's done us, but I do kind of wonder these things do sometimes kind of have unexpected consequences over the longer term, don't they? Like the, the, the protests against the Iraq war didn't stop the Iraq war, but that did help create other movements, other protest movements. So I do sort of wonder what would happen to all that kind of energy from like the sort of the, whether it's the slightly mad FBPE people or just kind of the sort of, uh, it, or just the way it sort of energized liberalism more generally in this country, I think. I do think that is probably going to be playing out in politics for, for, for quite a long time. It's just difficult to see it right now because we have this horribly liberal Tory government with an 80 seat majority. Those FBP people, we should, we should tell not everyone listening will know, especially the non-Brits, who, who oh, they are. They're, I don't even know who they are, but I know they retweet me a lot and they're very active in my I, mentions. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a hashtag. It stands for, it stands, uh, FBP stands for Follow Back Pro Europe. Hmm. It's a lot of effort went into that, into that acronym, didn't it? <laughs> but it's, it's, it's just people who sit on Twitter all day being like angrily anti-Brexit and, and pro-European. And like, I'm, 
I've always considered myself very pro-European by the standards of this country. And they're like, I, I'd be quite up for a European super state. I'd be quite up for a world super state. I think that's probably the way we need to go to solve some of our problems. I have no issue with the idea of like handing sovereignty over to Brussels. Nonetheless, these people are a bit too pro-European for my taste. It's a bit cool. <laughs> which is which is saying something. Perhaps um, a bit unquestioning of everything EU good, everything current British government bad, which... Yeah, it, it, exactly that. And it's like, like I think we've, this country's been through an absolute, it, it is an absolute disaster zone at the moment, but there are still things about this country that are, that are okay or even good. And there are things about bits of continental Europe that are not working very well. And there are things about like Brussels is quite dysfunctional in many ways. And I don't think you have to, I, I don't think it's helpful to kind of like, just start reading one side as, as good and the other side is always terrible. I, I don't think that's an aid to understanding. So you mentioned a super state. I'm a, I'm a bit of a federalist, definitely, where Europe is concerned. But, but world super state? Tell, tell me more about that. And, and why is that a solution? Oh, I just mean... So, so a lot of this is, is just being a nerd and having grown up on a diet of like TV, so there's fiction like Star Trek or whatever, where like, you know, if, if, if you have like shows with spaceships set several hundred years in the future, they do tend to take it for granted that, that at some point there will be a, a single world state. And partly that's because otherwise you're going to, it's going to complicate your plot mechanics, but also it's because a lot of these shows tend to sort of use different alien races and so on as kind of like metaphors and foreign policy and so on. So like Earth is basically space America, isn't it? But nonetheless, that kind of, that does just sort of mean that's always on some level been my vision of the future. I think there are problems we face that we can't solve at, at national level. Like, like the, 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 if you kind of look at sort of trying to manage like the sort of massive global tech companies that are bigger and richer and more powerful than most actual nation states. I don't think the, the architecture of 194 nation states is necessarily the best way of doing that. And there are times when collective action is needed, like climate change is another one. There are, there are problems I think we face that would be easier to solve if you didn't have different countries sort of racing, competing in the race to the bottom, basically. But all of this is, like, this is an absolute pipe dream. This is not me saying this is <laughs> where I think things are actually going to go. But this has always been like this, this was a factor in why I've always been instinctively pro-European as, you know, as someone who, like, I, I, I spent seven years at school learning French and I can barely speak a word. I can just about read the newspaper. I have no European languages. I've never lived anywhere outside the UK. I'm quite parochial in many ways, but I've always instinctively been quite sort of internationalist in outlook. And I think this is, I, basically I'm blaming Star Trek for that. <laughs> Maybe that's what we should do then in, in schools and uh, teach Star Trek. That could potentially open us up to, to child, as a child abuse, I suspect. <laughs> but but yeah. But also, like, the, the nation state is a relatively recent invention, mm -hmm. isn't it? I mean, like, we often, a lot of our political debate sort of takes it as, I mean, again, again like, this, I'm, I'm being parochial. I'm talking, when I say our political debate, I'm basically talking about this country because I can't read a foreign newspaper. But But I do feel like, a lot of the debate does take it as read that there is the nation is the na natural form of uh, politics and government. For much of history, that's not been true. Uh, you know, for most of history, it's been you you've, you live in a city and you know you have city states and you have empires, and there's only and there's a like, I think at this end of Europe, the nation states slightly older. Obviously, like both England and France are more than a thousand years old, and Scotland too. 
But that's even in Europe, that's quite unusual, isn't it? Like a lot of yeah, a lot of European nations are only a century or two old. I don't think you could even, you know, define France as a nation state until like Napoleon, maybe? Like before oh, yeah, that, no one spoke French, kind of, did they? It was, it was the language yeah, Paris, I mean French right? French is a is the patois, the dialect of, you know, a tiny, tiny corner around Paris. And they were there was, you know, different feuding aristocracy and the current borders of France are I mean if you add Savoy it's it's you know it's 150 years old so we like to tell because you know nations are are mainly the stories they tell about themselves right so we like to yeah in Britain you know everyone talks about 1066 and and all of that and Magna Carta and doomsday whatever I'm, I'm learning I've only been here five years but <laughs> but a lot of that is is myth right it's mythology to to build a nation more than more than genuine history and then you go oh, into like, the diversity of what these nations look like and I think a lot of people on the right would be surprised yeah I mean like talking to national mythologies it's like we, we talk about the, the the Norman invasion of 1066 is kind of like the last time England was successfully invaded. And it's an absolute lie. Like we were invaded by the Dutch in 1688, but we just rewritten history to pretend, to pretend that William of Orange was, was invited. And he was by one particular faction, which then took power because he became king. But it's not like, you know, before that, the whole country was crying out to get this, to get this Dutch guy in. It was by any reasonable definition an invasion. And we just don't, we don't talk about it in those, in those terms at all. We just pretend it was something else. You know, one, one story that I, that I keep hearing in England that, w- that was driving me crazy is these kind of cliches about the, the Brits or the English specifically as, as these nice people who don't riot and, and don't kill their kings and queens versus the dangerous revolutionary French. And I actually did the math and you guys killed a lot more kings and queens than we did. <laughs> <laughs> How many did we? I, I, I think we only executed one. I counted two beheaded. I forget who they are, of course. Charles Charles the First is the one is the one that everyone admits yes, to. Yes, that's the one. R- Richard the Second is deposed and dies suspiciously. I think the same is true of Edward the Second. Yeah, there's a lot of that going. But the the other, yeah, there's. But you're right. It's all it's all narratives. Like I did a, I did a silly piece in my in my newsletter recently just kind of listing people who were by any reasonable definition considered themselves at some point the monarch of England, but we just don't count on the lists, including like Louis VIII invaded in the 13th century and was welcomed by the city of London with open arms because, because King John was so deeply unpopular. He was absolutely hated to the extent that like everyone was like quite happy to get the French king in and let him take over. We just, so like there was a six month period in which Louis VIII considered himself king of England and we just, we pretend that never happened. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry to say we are, we are pretty much cousins. I'm Norman too. So, you know, from the other side of the water, but we're, we're pretty much the same, the same people. Uh, oh yeah. Mythology notwithstanding. <laughs> yeah. I wonder how it looks to the rest of the world. The like, like, England and France kind of like have both kind of defined themselves against each other to some extent for much of the last 800 years or something. But I suspect from the perspective of much of the rest of the world, they look quite historically similar, actually. I suspect they don't look like radically different because, you know, they were both very early 
nation states and then they were later imperial powers that went around the world doing doing horrible things to people mm-hmm. and um both they're both you know pretty pretty arrogant about their place in the world right yes well it was it was my theory when i was when i was living in the u.s that france and the u.s were so often at odds because essentially both thought way too highly of themselves and the same can be said of of living in britain now i think it's it's all of these countries with very lofty ideas of what they represent to the world who end up quite surprised and and hurt in their ego when uh turns out not to be the case which feels like the current malaise in in britain and certainly will sound very familiar to the french as well yeah i mean i think a lot of our problem is we have it's not even that we've not come to terms with empire it's like we just stopped talking about it like i think like i i, I found this very early on in life talking to Irish friends, realizing the extent to which the history I, the, the, this taught in Irish school is, is basically just a list of English atrocities, a few Scottish atrocities and then British atrocities. You know, it's just, that is Irish history, basically. And we are not taught any of that here. And we, you, couldn't, you couldn't be because like we were also busy performing atrocities in, in India and then latterly in Africa too. And and I don't, I don't know enough about how how other European imperial powers have, have kind of dealt with the, the legacy of this stuff, but we just do not talk about it mm. to the point, or, or we, we, at least we didn't before Brexit, <laughs> but this means we have no idea what our own history looks like. Like the history I was taught at school, just randomly because of the modules that were chosen by the teachers, I did nothing between the execution of Charles the first in 1649 and the rise of Otto von Bismarck in, in the 1860s. And there's quite a lot that happens in those two centuries. And most of it involves going around the world and stealing other people's countries. Yeah, that's, that's the years of British slavery, essentially, that you just <laughs> skipped over. Yeah. It is taught in schools that Britain, uh, the British Navy abolished the slave trade. And that is true. It just does ignore the fact that they also basically invented the triangular transatlantic slave trade. Like, and it's, yeah, it's, we are, we are just much more comfortable with, with discussing certain bits of our history and other, I mean, how, how do, is this the same in France? How do, does it differ there? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's quite similar at the moment. It's interesting because, you know, the whole war on woke and all that has unfortunately crossed the channel after it crossed the Atlantic. And that's definitely part of the conversation. And it's also, you know, it's something that I realized as an adult, I, I realized that I didn't learn anything, for instance, or very little in school about the Algerian war. You know, I I know that there was a peace treaty in 1962 and that, you know, that was that was thanks to the goal, or at least that's how it's presented. But, you know, torture, colonization, we learned very little about colonization, you know, besides, oh, you know, it was a different time and it wasn't immoral at the time, which actually you could argue plenty of people found it immoral at the time. And during the 2017 campaign, Macron called, called colonialism a crime against humanity. And it was quite a lot of outrage about that, which which I found fascinating because I come from a family that was involved. My grandfather was in the colonial administration, obviously not in the colonizing time, more in the final years before independence. And and he stayed on in Africa in the in the first decade of independence to to work with with local governments. And in a family like mine, 
it was not shocking at all. Like we have perfectly come to terms with the fact that colonization was wrong and that in that particular case, you know, my grandfather was thought he was doing the right thing, but was on the wrong side of history. But I think people who don't have a closer knowledge of what what the empire was, in a way, it, all they have in their head is the myth and the very little that they got about it in school and the very warped imagery that they got through through media and through culture. And so the notion, there's, there's a word in the public discourse in France, and then I'll, let you, I'll stop, but there's a word in the public discourse in France called repentance, which is like essentially, you know, being overly sorry and, and repenting for things that you've done in the past. And essentially people think that's awful and that you shouldn't do it and that, you know, what's in the past is in the past and let's move on without ever ap apologizing for it, which I find just, I, it's nothing, it's something, I mean, it's been in the discourse since I was a child and I never understood. I was like, if you've done something bad, you should apologize for it. That's what people do, right? <laughs> like, it's quite confusing to me. Yeah, it smacks of insecurity, it really doesn't does. it? Like, if if you think your country is is so great, then why can't you accept that that there were times that it got stuff wrong? Like, and you know, it's it just I I don't quite understand the sort of that 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 level of sensitivity that means you can't accept that 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 history is is has has bad stuff in it as well as good, you know? Yeah, I mean, the reaction in in this country to any suggestion that. Winston Churchill was not just a hero of World War II, but was also profoundly reviled in India for his role there. You know, the idea that there might be more than one side to the character seems to really shock people, just like the, um, the National Trust report about the connection of slavery, of, of some of these beautiful estates to, to slavery and to, and to the colonial trade. It's like it's impossible to hold two ideas in your head at the same time, that someone can be a hero and a villain or something can be beautiful and extremely tainted. So I think I think World War Two is, as you will know, having lived in this country for five years, I think World War Two is, is a big part of our, our national psychosis. Just and I think it's that you know, that that was a point in which Britain was you know, obviously we we did the there were, there were like plenty of things that we got wrong as well, but you know, Britain was unequivocally on the right side and it did a good thing. And it, it basically burnt up its, its empire and its status as a global power to, to help save the world from, from fascism. And so that becomes the narrative. Like we say, like, because we, because Britain was never occupied in the way France was, we didn't have, we didn't have a lot of the horrors. So it's, it's, it's we sort of treat it as a bit of a sort of theme park. But, but it means that that's kind of the narrative we get instead of the reckoning with the end of empire. Like we don't talk about the end of empire because it just kind of like faded away during and immediately after World War II. So, so instead of this, instead of kind of looking at this period in which, in which we would have had to come to terms with the fact that we've been, we've been colonizing other countries and that's not okay, really. We instead get this sort of heroic narrative, you know, Britain stands alone. So, you know, never mind the fact that it's gone half a billion people in this empire standing behind it as well. It just means that that sets the narrative rather than the end of empire. And yeah, I think that does explain not quite all, but almost all of the politics of Brexit. I think someone, I think it was the one time guardian journalist, Michael White said to me many, many years ago, he put, when I was doing a, a student master's dissertation on, on Euroscepticism in the, in the British press, 
he pointed out that there were only two countries in, in the EU, 15 at that point, it might've just expanded. It was around 2004. There were only two countries in, in the EU as it then stood that had not been occupied at any point in the 20th century by another power. And they were the United Kingdom and Sweden. And both of those, um, were right at the top of the Eurosceptics and charts because it is much harder to conceive of, of firstly, I think if, if, if you haven't been occupied by foreign army, it is easier to believe in the abstract notion of national sovereignty. And secondly, it is harder to see why you need international cooperation sometimes. I mean, it's, so I feel like I'm babbling at you slightly. No, 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 um, not at all. Not at all. We're, we're definitely, it's interesting because we're, we're seeing the same thing, you know, even in, in our countries on the continent that have been occupied, which is because that generation that has known this has pretty much died off. And the generation of children who grew up with their parents remembering the war is, you know, that's my parents' generation and they're getting older. And so you, there is, in the, even in the political discourse, you know, there is certainly a strong return, if it ever went away, of anti-Semitism that is blatant and, and spoken out loud, of anti-migrant and anti-refugee sentiment, of, of anti-European sentiment that you just wouldn't have heard 20, 30 years ago. But because there is less and less of that lived experience, you know, my generation, we all had pretty much all had a Holocaust survivor or a World War II veteran come and talk to us at school. Kids today don't get that. And so that experience is slowly fading away and the, you can see it in the, in the political discourse as well. Is there much, a discussion is probably not quite the right word, has there been much of a reckoning with, with Vichy and, and that last chunk of Southern France basically collaborated with Nazis? The blind blind the way we have blind spots over him. No, I think that is pretty that is pretty acknowledged. It, it wasn't in the, you know, years immediately following the war, apparently. I mean, I wasn't born. But it's pretty much acknowledged now. There is a wonderful French TV show called Village Francais, a French village. I don't know what they translated it in English, but it, that was running for many years from French public television. It's looking at one village through the occupation. So it starts when the, when the Nazis kind of win the war until the liberation. And, and it's looking at one village and how people behaved. And it's extremely detailed and, and no one is 100% good. No one is 100% evil either. And mm. so that narrative, and that was extremely popular in France. And so I think that narrative is, is, pretty, is pretty well accepted, I think. We have at least got that. That's, that's interesting because, yeah, like you mentioned Churchill and how he is just kind of treated as this uncomplicated heroic figure as if he wasn't, you know, by, not even by modern standards, by the standards of his own time, he was a racist as well. But also even leaving that aside, you can make a fairly strong argument that, that it was decisions he made that were responsible for the Bengal famine of 1944, which killed millions of people because of the way he wanted to redirect uh, resources from, from from what's now sort of uh, Eastern Ind India and Bangladesh to, to, to the UK to, to help the war effort. And yeah, it's, you, you, you can't say, you can't say that at all about Churchill without getting absolutely piled on. 
Also, also, like the time of year, we're about to go into poppy season. You, you a fan oh. of poppy season? <laughs> I, you know, I, I lived in America post 9-11. I lived and through the Iraq war. So I am well familiar with the displays of visual patriotism. <laughs> it's a slightly weird one, though, because I think compared to both the US and I think even France and much of Europe, like we don't really do it for... Yeah, public buildings do not generally display flags. Yeah. People do not generally kind of like have their own. We don't tend to go in for those sort of public displays of patriotism. But for those who aren't, aren't familiar, every uh, November 11th is Remembrance Day, which is the, the day we meant to remember the war dead. And if that Remembrance Sunday, there's the closest Sunday to that, there's a minute silence and so on, and a big parade and all this kind of thing. But, but the, the Royal British Legion, which is a charitable body raising money for veterans, has for, for as long as anyone can re remember been selling paper poppies as a way of raising money. And, and as you get into sort of mid to late October, you start getting like public figures who appear on TV without wearing a poppy will get pylons on social media <laughs> because they're not showing support for a veteran. It's, it's, it's insane. And like, like it's, you know, when I, when I was a kid, I always used to buy a poppy and I always used to wear it because, you know, they're quite nice objects apart from anything else. It's kind of quite, but now I feel like I don't want to do that anymore. I, because I, I don't want to, like, I, I, I will give that, I will make that charitable contribution, but I do not want to kind of look like I'm taking that side in a culture war. And I, I wonder if to some extent this is because we have got, we are getting to the point there are, there are almost no veterans of, of the war. Of, I don't think there's any veterans of World War I at this point, but I think there are very, very few of World War II and all of the 90s and so on. I think it's because it is receding into the past that, that other actors have, have moved in and kind of like politicized this for their own motives. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Isabel. I want to tell you about something new that's available from Borderline. I read a lot about the issues that Borderline is concerned with. Immigration, free movement, globalization, global trade, geopolitics, and anything to do with life beyond the nation state. A lot of these things I read, I want to share with you. So from now on, on Wednesdays, you can receive a newsletter that is a curation of exactly that. Now, I promise it's not one more annoying email. I keep it short and snappy, just a two minute read of the top news you must know, the most interesting reads, as well as what I call long story short, one issue broken up in four or five bullet points that just really clarify it for you. This week, we're talking about the actual reasons that the UK is running out of lorry drivers, and that's coming from the mouth of an actual Polish truck driver. We're talking about Squid Game and the rise of local global television. You'll find out what that is. We're talking about Afghan refugees stuck at the borders between Poland and Belarus, as well as what's happening to them here in the UK. We're talking about US travel restrictions changing, all of these things that are very practical and concrete in our lives. And then for fun, I guess, we're talking about how Estonians came to be seen as white people, which they didn't used to be, and how Silicon Valley is taking over a corner of Honduras. It's all at borderlinepod.com slash subscribe. Let me know what you think. You can reach out at isa at borderlinepod.com. Now back to our conversation with John Elledge. I do think like people often don't realize quite what a recent invention nation state was and how like, you know, in, in, in the, in the mid 19th century, nationalism in Europe was, was seen as the progressive force because it was about self-determination. It was about people kind of taking, you know, having taken control of their own affairs from these kind of multinational empires. 
but for much of history, that has been the sort of unit of government. You don't necessarily expect to be in, in kind of a political unit where everyone is from the same kind of ethnic or linguistic group as yourself. That is a relatively, that is a relatively recent, recent thing. And I, if, if you kind of look at this in the grand sweep of human history, I do not necessarily think that there is a reason to imagine that the nation state will, is going to persist forever. And I think it probably does get replaced by, by something else somewhere down the line, even if we don't know what that is. I interviewed really early on in the story of this podcast, this author called Hassan Demluji, and he's written this book called A Responsible Globalist. And the subtitles is what globalists should learn from nationalists. And he essentially looks at how the nation state was born and, and why it was such a great success and how you could try and essentially rep replicate that at a global level and create that same feeling of, you know, weird tribalism and, and belonging to a nation, but at a, at a global level, at, at the size of humanity, essentially. The challenge is, as you were saying, you know, with, with Star Trek, it helps to have an alien race to somehow create some kind of Earth versus them dynamic. Yeah. It's very hard to unite people without a sense of an other that's, that's out there that we need to unite against, even without going to war, you know, but that sense of we have something in common that others don't. Would you think that's, I mean, you were saying earlier that like France, as it is now, really only kind of comes, comes to be in the sort of Napoleonic era. Do you think a function of that was there were quite, there were quite a few years in that time when like literally everybody else in Europe was at war with you. Do you think that was a, a factor in the kind of creation of a French identity? that spread far beyond Paris? Well, the French identity, I think, is something, and I'm by no means a, an expert scholar of this, but I think it's very interesting because it's something that was very largely consciously manufactured in the 19th century because people used to be much more closely attached to their region, uh, their local, their village. People up into late into the 19th century, very frequently spoke their local dialect much more fluently and frequently than, than they spoke French. And what the Third Republic did, so that's the, the kind of the second half or last quarter really of the, of the 19th century, was have free and compulsory public schools that taught in French and took kids out of their families to teach them not only the language, but also the values, the Republican values kind of against the church, which still was very powerful. And so that sentiment of belonging to the nation, which is also a sentiment that is very Republican in the, you know, Republic sense of the word, not the American Republican sense of the word, that was very consciously created. And so what's interesting is that it, essentially anyone can be French as long as you adhere to that. Um, which is why, you know, there's French language skill tests to pass, to get into, to get citizenship. And, you know, I mean, there's been much written about in the English world about laïcité and this idea of secularism and why you can't wear a hijab in a French school. So in a way, anyone can be French, but as long as you very strictly adhere to this notion of what it means to be French, which was, which was created in the 19th century. So it's very different from... English or American multiculturalism, and it doesn't necessarily adapt very well to the 21st century and to what the population of France looks like today, 
which is why there's a lot of, of tension around these things at the moment. It feels to me that like, uh, like, like France and Britain have had very different experiences of, of multiculturalism. It feels to me that like Britons from, from ethnic minorities are, are more prominent in, in, you know, the, top positions in, you know, media or entertainment or, or even politics. I mean, like two of the great offices of state are, are, are now held by, sorry, two of the four great offices of state, the chancellor and the home secretary are held by, by people of Indian heritage. And it, am I right in thinking that's not, there isn't really a direct parallel for that in, in France? Um, there certainly isn't. I mean, the country is also, you know, just if you look at the demographics, less diverse than, than the UK and certainly than London. But there is also, well, there's two things. One is, is yes, there are still, there is still certainly an institutional racism, though, even though if you say that word in France, that will start a whole ugly debate, but there is certainly institutional racism. There is also just kind of a different notion of, of what it means to be a diverse society multiculturalism is kind of a dirty word <laughs> the idea is that when you come to france and you become french you kind of shed what differentiated you so i have many issues with that because that essentially is a lot easier to do if you're a white christian immigrant than if you are a black muslim immigrant for instance but mm -hmm. but essentially those those differentiations aren't made in the same way you don't you don't hyphenate you know you're not you're not Indian French in the way that you can be British South Asian or you're not, they're very, very different notions, which my gosh, I really would need a scholar to explain this, to explain this <laughs> better. But yes, it, there is very, very much uh, fewer visible uh, minorities in government and in positions of power. And even when they are there, um, tend to not draw attention to to that difference. I, I should say, because like I kind of started you down this road, I, I should say, this is not me saying like Britain is like a multicultural paradise where like we've ended racism or anything. I, I absolutely don't think that's, that's absolutely not my, my position. But I, it, it is kind of fascinating the way like pretty much every country or every country of, a, of, of any diversity of population in it does seem to have have issues of kind of like racism and prejudice and, and so on. Oh, yeah. But they do they do manifest completely differently in different countries in a way I find like weirdly fascinating. It's a really fascinating conversation and debate that's happening. Unfortunately it's not always done with a very calm <laughs> demeanor <laughs> or, or or attitude to it. But you know essentially a lot of people in France see you know, multiculturalism in the, in the British or the American fashion arrive in France. And certainly Gen Z is much more, his influenced by American culture and is certainly much more of that perspective on things, which in France is called essentialist, which is essentially defining people by their origins, by their skin color, etc., versus France aspired to be universalist, which is essentially everyone is the same and those differences don't exist, which is you know, a nice and lofty ideal, but it's not actually how people treat one another. It's certainly not how the state treats people. So it's a bit like an I don't see color kind of thing, which isn't yeah. real, but but that French institutions still very much hold on to. And I, I, have a, I have some sympathy for it 
because how to express this? I, I I do feel sometimes, you know, and that's the French in me, that those differentiations are too exacerbated in the public discourse to the point that it becomes the only thing that you start to see about people. And that makes those conversations very difficult to have across communities. And so they end up being a bit siloed. But I also think that the French way you really want and cannot last because that's certainly not how younger French generations see it today. But that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess, sorry, my brain is completely gone. <laughs> no, I mean, we, we oh, went, man. we went in a completely <laughs> somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. We've been, we've been all over. That's going to be an I interesting mean, like, edit. Things, <laughs> one of the things I find I mean, one of the many, many, almost infinite number of things I find depressing about Brexit and everything that has come from it. But one of them is that, like, in some ways, like, Britain is, Britain is, I think it might be the most multicultural country in Europe. It's certainly near the top. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of, you know, young black British men particularly are going to face loads of racism. So it's not like we don't have huge issues. But you can also point to certain things and say, okay, there are bits of this we are doing quite well. And... None of that is is the narrative we are we are telling about ourselves because it's all. I mean, I, sp I suppose to some ex extent the Brexit vote was to some extent a kind of reaction against the success of, of multiculturalism and liberalism, and you know, and, and also because these these qualities tend to get tied up with bound up with with, with London as a city, which is you know as, as you'll know of living here, you know it's a hugely international city. It's and you can be from anywhere and be a Londoner, and no no one's really going to question that. It's kind of possible to switch allegiance to a different city in a way you can't switch nationality quite so easily. Mm -hmm. So like to an extent, Brexit was an, an older generation kind of kicking back against the fact that uh, their kids are a lot more diverse and liberal than they are. But nonetheless, it does kind of mean we've been the face that Britain has shown the world recently and England particularly is, is that of kind of like a sort of like aging middle-aged reactionary. Whereas I think from a liberal internationalist perspective, I think there are, there are a lot of things about this country that we, we, we could actually be quite proud of, but those aren't the ones that we've, we've foregrounded at all recently. We've just got this, those nasty, the, the, the nasty people who hate foreigners in charge. So. Yeah, it's been, it's been extremely dissonant for me as an immigrant here. When did you arrive by the way? So I arrived, I got my contract to move here on the day of the Brexit referendum. Oh, bloody hell. Yeah, so it's easy to remember. I was living in Australia at the time and I had, you know, already my, my company moved me here. I had already had that conversation with my boss and I was already emotionally invested in, in moving to London. And then I got the contract on the day of the referendum and kind of watched the, the news. You know, it was it was daytime in Australia, watched the news, watched my contract, was like, what do I do? <laughs> but I was, I you know, I was, I was like, oh, they can't possibly, you know, they'll, they'll, They'll Brexit, but not really. They'll stay in the single market. You know, they just they just shot themselves in the foot, but it won't be that bad. You know, I <laughs> didn't see the, the next five years coming. But I mean, I sort of think it was, sorry, I, I interrupted, but I, I sort of think it was, it was because it was quite a close vote. It really was, that, yeah. Yeah, it was like a couple of points could have moved. And then, so you can make an, a compelling argument that almost anything could have swung it the other way. But I think one of the weird side effects of this is, the, the, the pro-Brexit leave side kind of had to go around 
talking as if it was an overwhelming mandate. Like I think the very narrowness of it meant that they didn't feel they could compromise. Mm. Which is not, I'm not saying this is good behavior, but I can sort of like see how, how it happens and how like if it had been 60, 40 for leave, it probably would have been much easier to kind of, because they wouldn't have been that insecurity about whether or not it was actually going to happen. Because, mm. you know, we used, you know there, were, there were several years where it genuinely felt like maybe we could walk it back. Yeah, when you think that today, if you did the vote again, you know, it wouldn't pass. If if EU citizens that live in the UK had, had the right to vote the same way that Commonwealth citizens did, it wouldn't have passed. If 16-year-old had had the right to vote, who are being, you know, who are young adults now impacted by it, it, it wouldn't have happened either. But it has been re- really, really dissonant as an immigrant yeah. between how wonderfully welcoming London has been and diverse and probably of all the cities that I've lived in, I've lived in many, the place that feels most easy to be myself in as a as a French woman who's not French enough and too feminist for Paris. And as a, I mean, it's just, it, it, you know, it feels right. The city does, but then the country really doesn't. And I've often considered leaving and I'm still can't decide because the politics have been so hostile to people like myself and life has been made so much more complicated by literally having to have an Excel spreadsheet where I keep count of the days that I spent outside the country so I don't lose my eligibility for settled status and, and for citizenship next year. So it's, it's absolutely absurd. It's just yeah. yeah. <laughs> the end. Well, as we were talking about at the top of the show, like the Australia dumping all its its refugees on 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 the island country of Nauru, like it, it's the same kind of impulse you see in the British Home Office to deliberately make things as unpleasant and as difficult uh, as possible as a signal to to both to to you know both as a signal to say, to tell people not to come here but also as a signal to particular voters that it is being hard like all this stuff this is yeah it's just awful i mean i do kind of feel like you you said you sort of imagined we'd stay in the single market my sort of suspicion is that long term we'd probably end up back in the single i don't i don't imagine whatever in fact my sort of grand unified theory of brexit is that like whatever happens and however the vote had gone in 2016 Probably our long-term destiny is to end up in in the single market, but not in any political union. Like, even if even if Remain had won that referendum, there would at some point be a country called Europe, and Britain would not want to go into that. But they do kind of think the economic logic of of being part of the single market will will over time become overwhelming. I think we're probably just going to very gradually rebuild our position in the single market piece by piece. Mm. But what that means for for freedom of movement i don't know i suspect we're probably a way off being able to walk that one back but but i do kind of think we, we you know too much of our trade is naturally going to be with europe that's and this winter is going to be hard because there's going to be loads of there are going to be empty shelves because you can't get products into the country i'm um i'm going home for I, i've booked my ferry tickets i'm going home for christmas knock on wood provided the walls don't change again i'm going i'm going home with my car uh, so i'll come back with a car full of food <laughs> So, you know, yeah, take your orders now. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll make sure to do my part, like Dunkirk style, to, to, supply, to supply England with uh, much needed food and, and, and petrol. Please, please, we need all the help we can get right now. 
<laughs> oh well, I mean that's that's a whole other that's a whole other episode potentially. But I'm fascinated with how the backlash on globalization ends up destroying free movement, but maintaining ultimately will maintain free trade because there's too much money at stake, and capital won't let it happen. But so I find it fascinating that essentially people are rightly identifying all the problems of capitalization, but they're taking it out on migrants instead of taking it out on, you know, you know, global capital that's run amok. It's yeah, that's a whole other episode, as I said. <laughs> yeah, it's going back to the state of play last winter. It was literally easier to get into this country as a virus than it was as a human being, which, which feels slightly the wrong way round, but we are, we are where we are. Should I, should I, sorry, just, should I say the name of the book or something? I just yeah, sure absolutely. Tell us, tell us about the book. Shamelessly promote this. Please shamelessly so, uh, uh, plug it. <laughs> yes. So the, the book is called the compendium of not quite everything. It's out now from, from headline and it's about a hundred sort of mini essays on all sorts of topics, just random things that I find interesting, really. So it starts with some creation myths and then my sort of 800 word summary of the Big Bang and the creation of the universe and evolution. There's a lot of stuff about galaxies and stars and planets and stuff about how many countries there are in the world and how the biggest islands and uh, some bits on the history of numbers and mathematics and, and the, some, there's been some particularly stupid wars that's a fun entry that but there's the nazis a lot of them about cows <laughs> there's so there've been surprising number of wars about cows although my fa my favorite of the stupid wars is the the, the emu war the I'm emu sure war yeah yeah especially yeah. the emu won uh <laughs> yeah in which the australian army went to war against some large flightless birds and lost twice it's one of my favorite stories from all of history. But yeah, there's the, the very nice line in, in, in the review in, in the Daily Mail. So the, the, it's very unlikely you'll be interested in everything in this book, but you're, it's extremely unlikely you will be interested in something. So, you know, please buy it. Please buy it for anyone in your life you don't know what to get for Christmas because they will hopefully enjoy it. I will I will second that. And I think for listeners to this podcast, I was saying earlier, the, the second section is is fascinating. I appreciate that as an Englishman, you're English, right? Yes. I am. Yeah, I'm very boring. I, English. <laughs> Actually, I, I live in I live in the east end of London. <laughs> uh, and I was I once tried tracing my 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 family tree, and I got back as far as my great 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 grandfather, John Elledge, which is the same as my name, who lives in the same postcode as I do now. <laughs> um, so, like, all that's happened in two hundred years is that I've learned to misspell my own name. <laughs> Well, I we're we're big into genealogy. My brother has gone back to like the 13th century, I think, and uh, and we're French. It's extremely boring. We're French yeah. all the time. Like there, you know, we've moved a bit from essentially we've at some point people went up to Paris to try and get rich, which they did, but then they got poor again. But so that's just <laughs> a story of many families, really. Yeah. But no, I appreciate that in the book as an Englishman, you you recognize how absolutely bonkers the imperial system of measurement is. Oh, it's insane! It's, it's absolutely insane. It's the, the one. It's, there's no internal logic to it whatsoever. Uh, so yeah, there is an entry that's just me getting increasingly furious at imperial measurements. Hmm. And like the, the like the metric system is one of the best things that France Isn't has ever it? given the world. <laughs> it's like it's like this towering intellectual achievement. We make um, we make up for it by counting in really weird ways. So, do you know how you say ninety in French? I mean, you've taken seven oh, it's years. Of French. Than this, isn't it? 
It's uh, French numbers I can do. That's the bit I got. <laughs> it's 90, it's, So it's four times yes, 20 yes. plus 10. Yeah. Which is the weirdest way of saying 90. So we do have some quirks as well. Well, isn't that what makes a nation really? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's a good line to, to end on. Thank you so much, John. Uh, really appreciate Thank you for having me. This conversation of not quite everything. We, we didn't do quite everything, but almost. <laughs> That's very. That's very much my vibe. It's just like I'm just trying to work out how to kind of monetize talking nonsense about random subjects. That's kind of like my plan for the rest of my career. And and you do it very well. And we should say you have a newsletter of of the same sort as well that people can sign up. I do. Yeah, it's called a newsletter of not quite everything, uh, which is you know Branson that she obviously. Yeah, you've got a brand um, there. (laughs) I do. Yeah, there there has also been a podcast of not quite everything, which we just we've, we've just finished the first season of, in which. I basically have a fairly rambling conversations like this, only with me as the interviewer with, with an expert. So I spoke to people like the historian Alex von Tunzelman, or the comedian Ahir Shah, or, or a guy called Heino Falk, who's a German astronomer, who's the guy who was the first man to take a picture of a black hole. So it's, it's completely random. It's just based on me finding interesting people I want to talk to. Which is the dream, really, as a journalist. So I mean, that's, that's why we chose this profession, right? So yeah. <laughs> we'll make sure to put all the links uh, in the show notes so people can go and buy the book, sign up for the newsletter, listen to the podcast, all with my warm recommendation. Thank you so much, John. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. The Compendium of Not Quite Everything by John Ellich is available now from Headline, and I can confirm that it definitely makes for a great Christmas present because, yes, we're already there thinking about Christmas presents for people with a curious mind in your life. You'll also find links to the podcast of Not Quite Everything and the newsletter of Not Quite Everything in the show notes. This is also my opportunity to tell you that if you buy the book from the link in the show notes or from borderlinepod.com, you will be supporting Borderline. I've opened a bookshop, simply an affiliate program with bookshop.org, which supports independent bookstores in the UK and the US and through this affiliate program can now also support this independent media. You'll find books from guests on the podcast, anything that's referenced or talked about here, as well as other recommendations that I think Borderline listeners and readers will enjoy. All you need to do is click through the Borderline bookshop. You'll buy the books in just the same way as you usually do, but it will help support this podcast. As I mentioned last week, I'm back in school learning how to grow and improve Borderline. I am testing new products, including this new newsletter, and I am therefore extremely pressed for time. Podcast production takes an insane amount of time, I can't even tell you, and unfortunately it's taking me away from doing a lot of other things and from writing. So the podcast is going to go bi-weekly in order to give a little breathing room for other projects to emerge. I hope you'll stay tuned. In fact, uh, from talking to a lot of you, I know many have a backlog of episodes to listen to because these are quite dense and long, so giving you a little bit more time as well to get through the archives. Let me know what you think. You can always reach out to me at isa at borderlinepod.com or through the borderlinepod.com website. I'm your host, Isabel Hogal. Music was by Offshane. Borderline is a one-lane bridge production, and I will talk to you in two weeks.